Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Skybound Capital's podcast series under the macroscope. Now, this is an episode that I've really been looking forward to because uh, we welcome from ETM Analytics, George Glenos, uh, with whom the company has a close association and uh, we really hang on his every word. It's always fascinating to get uh, George and ETM's take on, on what's going on in the world and, and true to form. Uh, under the macroscope really does take a look at uh, global macro issues. And we're going to ask George for his view on some of those and more specifically how they're having a, a tangible effect in South Africa at the moment. George, great to have you on the podcast. Um, I think one of the topics that dominated this podcast for much of last year was looming global inflation. Uh, it has come to pass. And indeed, there are additional factors that have come into play that perhaps no one could have predicted, uh, which have just served to enhance uh, the inflationary outlook. What is your view on the inflationary trends globally at the moment and, and more specifically uh, how they're affecting South Africa? Thank you, Matt. Uh, and thank you for that introduction. Good to be with you guys. Um, looking forward to, to this discussion. Uh, yeah, the, the, the topic of, of inflation, you, you're quite right, was uh, a fear long before it became a reality. And I, I think there's a little bit of context required there. We, we, we as, as uh, economists, fundamentally view inflation as more of a monetary phenomenon than, than the, the straight-out supply versus demand argument. So we, we think that before you get to the supply versus demand argument, you, you need to understand the backdrop of, of the monetary environment that exists. So the, the basic principle here is that uh, inflation will only materially manifest if the monetary space exists for that inflation to take hold. In other words, if you've got tight monetary conditions, it's very difficult for inflation to rear its, its ugly head. If you've got very loose monetary conditions, uh, you've got a lot more space for that, for that inflation to, to take hold. In the case of COVID and the pandemic, uh, we saw a very swift um, and, and colossal response from the major central banks around the world, led by, of course, the Central Bank of, of America, the Federal Reserve, um, closely followed by the European Central Bank. And you had other major uh, central banks, such as the Bank of England, uh, the, the Bank of Japan, Bank of Canada, and others. So you had a very swift response. And, and to give you a little bit of perspective as to how big the, the response ultimately was, um, following the financial crisis of 2009, it took these very same central banks collectively um, a, about 10 years to build their balance sheets by uh, approximately 10 odd trillion dollars. Uh, in the space of just 18 months from the start of the pandemic in March 2020, they were able to build their balance sheet by a similar amount, if not slightly more. So what took them 10 years, they managed to concertina into just 18 months. Now that is just an enormous amount of liquidity and monetary stimulation to apply to a global economy in an extraordinarily short space of time. So you've got all of this wall of, of stimulation and, and monetary space that hits the global economy all at the same time. And it's actually quite difficult to absorb. 
so you you have this huge uh, you have this this huge stimulation that arises, and of course it does start to kick off a a credit cycle. The credit cycle does start to gain a little bit of momentum, and all of a sudden you see money supply growth rates in your developed economies. Uh, again, most notably America rising rapidly into double digits, and in the case of of the U.S. Uh, they were recording M2 money supply growth of 25%. Now, for an economy the size of America, you get growth rates of 25% in money supply. It's just unbelievably huge. Uh, by, by contrast, you look at South Africa, and at the same sort of time, we were producing growth rates of somewhere between um, 3 to 6%. So you're contrasting this 25% rise in money supply in America versus uh, the call it a 5% money supply uh, rise in, in South Africa. And immediately that starts to have a, a range of consequences. Uh, some of those consequences were very distortionary in nature. So immediately you started to see uh, equity markets starting to rally. You saw bond markets uh, performing quite well. And yet we were in a, an environment where the global economy for all intents and purposes actually stopped. Mm. It stopped, yet you still had these stock markets going record to record and you had bond markets performing actually quite well. And it was about the central bank stepping in and purchasing a lot of these assets. Now, that's all very well and fine up until the point where some of that stimulation and liquidity uh, eventually starts to seep into, into the underlying economy, and it does so through the credit cycle. Not only have private sector balance sheets strengthened um, and, and created some, some confidence in that economy, but you get uh, the, the lagged effects of that stimulation filtering through uh, via the government and, and other channels uh, into the economy, and all of a sudden you've got this very strong uh, demand environment. But it sprung out of a very stimulatory environment that the central banks created in the first place. Hence their response that we're seeing at the moment. So they're trying to unwind a lot of that stimulation because they've realized the effect that it had. So insofar as the inflation episode is concerned, yes, we're seeing a, a very strong inflation response and it hasn't been helped by the fact that we've got a war that has created some some um, deficiencies in not only supply chains, but the supply of uh, some, some very important minerals uh, and energy and the like. Um, over and above that, we're still not over COVID and you can see what's going on in China and they're locking down hard. So there's concerns there that there's gonna be supply chain disruptions. The combination of all of that means that we, we have um, a tinderbox, if you like, that's been lit. Uh, and the tinderbox had a nice dose of petrol poured all over it in the form of monetary policy. And so that's, that's lit and, and inflation is, is firing up properly. And um, at the moment, we're living through the worst of it, I believe. So I, I think with the, the ultimate response of these central banks, we'll probably see it peaking around these current levels and, and drifting uh, off a little bit later on this year. But it's undoubtedly true that uh, inflation was driven principally by the monetary policy that was implemented, followed by an unfortunate set of, of geopolitical developments and, and COVID pandemic type developments that, that uh, collectively just added fuel to the proverbial fire and all of a sudden we've got this inflation episode. Um, South Africa contrasts with that, right? Um, so whilst that's very much an international picture in South Africa, we've got 
low levels of money supply growth. Uh, we've had, uh, as a result of that, we haven't had the kind of inflation simply because we haven't had the monetary room to accommodate that inflation. Um, even though we've had uh, fuel prices rising and all of that, it hasn't filtered through to the extent that it has internationally. And I think that goes to show that conservative monetary policies do protect the value of your currency. And hence, we've had a rand that's, that's staged an impressive uh, recovery through the course of this year. Let's just pick up on, on energy. You speak about uh, throwing uh, a dose of petrol onto a tinderbox. Well, at, at the moment, that dose of petrol is costing more than it has uh, for, for quite some time. But energy as, as a sector, we, we've, we've spoken on this podcast uh, with Jabir Sadawala in our London office about rising energy prices in the UK, um, specifically around heating and, and, and gas. Uh, in South Africa, with with this uh, fuel price increase, uh, which has been the result of a, a number of different factors, we know how dependent we are on our roads um, in our supply chain, given the, the failure in many respects of rail in this country. Uh, the oil price, where it is at the moment, how much of a medium to long-term effect do you see that having? Oh no, it has uh, it has uh, far-reaching uh, consequences and and very deep-rooted uh, uh, consequences and effects. So, um, in the case of South Africa, again, you know, you you got to look at these things in context. So, uh, in an environment where you've got a lot of uh, money supply growth and can accommodate inflation, the immediate impact uh, is, of course, inflationary. In a an, an environment like South Africa's, where your money supply growth isn't there it's not so much inflationary as it is recessionary. Uh, so over and above the, the structural constraints that the South African economy faces, you now, um, you, you now add to that mix uh, this, this um, huge increase in, in energy prices. And by the way, it doesn't just stop at, at oil um, and, and fuel, uh, because just remember, um, over and above what's happened to those standard, okay, you mentioned gas, you mentioned oil, uh, also comes coal. And um, if you have a look at the coal price, uh, you'll be amazed to see that the coal price has risen even faster than the oil price, uh, which has serious implications for um, a, a coal burning uh, power producer like Eskom. Uh, so all of a sudden you begin to realize that the consequences are vast and, and they're quite, uh, quite a lot more widespread than, than just the petrol pump, uh, petrol pump experience that we, we all suffer through. Uh, so it is recessionary. It's, it's like an added form of tax that's leveled on the average household that now has to pay literally double what they were paying about 18 months to two years ago uh, for fuel. Um, and, and so it does impact, it impacts very, very heavily. And so not only does it detract from, from growth, it does keep your prices elevated, which, which of course uh, encroaches on your disposable income. And then on, on the other side, uh, impacts the, the productivity of the country, not just because Eskom's gonna struggle, but because country uh, companies more generally have to uh, fund themselves and and um, and and mitigate the effects of of Eskom load shedding through the running of generators and their own uh, supply chains of of uh, of energy, uh, so that they can remain productive. So across the board, uh, you you begin to get a picture, Matt, of of just how devastating this can be, um, and and why in South Africa's case it ultimately lands up being more recessionary than it does um, inflationary.
as usual on the podcast, if I can just take a pause there, we encourage you to get in touch and uh, ask any questions you may have of the, the Skybound Capital team and indeed of George and the ETM analytics team. Uh, it would be fascinating to get your comments and your questions. I'm going to pick up on one, uh, George, if I may, that, that you've just alluded to, and, and, and that is ESCOM's power supply. I, I guess one of the blunt questions that everybody wants an answer to is is why is there no greater will in in terms of alternative sources of energy we've been through many rounds of applications in south africa for the production uh, of renewable energy primarily through to, through solar and wind uh, why is there not more acceleration in that space well, I think you, you come out of a, a political environment that has been uh, quite centralized. Uh, it's the way they've wanted it. Um, there, there was a distinct uh, lack of, of confidence in the private sector uh, to, to play a material role in resolving a lot of these issues. Uh, of course, that's had to be revised uh, because government simply has run out of, of money and has run out of the ability to borrow money in order to continuously plug these holes. Our debt to GDP ratios, for example, have risen to such a degree that uh, it's just not feasible for the government to, to borrow money in the way that it used to. Uh, if one has a look at the, the Eurobond issue that happened just uh, a few days ago, uh, South Africa was forced to issue internationally at around 7%, which is enormously, uh, that's, a, that's very high. Uh, it's quite punitive for South Africa. And so uh, that, that's not particularly, a, that, that's not an attractive uh, proposition for, for the country uh, at all. Because just remember, you borrow that money, but now you're exposed to the currency risk as well. Uh, so, and, and you're doing it at, at levels that are arguably uh, quite strong in RAND terms. Um, not, a good, not a good combination. So I think, again, you know, when you have a look at, at, at this, um, I guess, a, a little more holistically, uh, when it comes to when it comes to ESCOM, uh, I, th I think it's been a reluctance on on government to include uh, the private sector. Um, that is changing, though, Matt. We we have seen some indications of that changing, and thankfully so, because you know we we're going for bid window five on on renewables. Um, that's going to bring some more some more energy into the mix. Uh, private. Uh, private companies are now able to produce their own electricity and whether that be through solar panels or their own generating um, equipment, um, the mines will be able to become a little more uh, self-sustained and, and less dependent on the grid in the way that they were. Um, so, so I think we moved in the right direction. They've also split ESCOM into three and allowed the generation uh, section, the, the generation company to be able to purchase on a lease cost basis from uh, producers. So we're starting to privatize and privatize by stealth, not by selling off assets so much as just allowing the private sector to be included more, which I think is is really constructive and it's a, it's a move in the right direction. But it's taken a crisis for this to happen. Mm. Um, the 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 ANC government would not have done so willingly because it's just not in their it's it's just not in their ideological and and philosophical view of how. Uh, a developmental country, how whatever that means, uh, is supposed to run. Mm -hmm. uh, so they believe that developmental means that government has to pull the levers and be involved in every aspect and facet of society. When in actual fact, um, what could be more developmental than than growing your economy more rapidly and making it more self-sustainable? 
um, through the crowding in of the private sector, which ultimately pays, pays more taxes. So, you know, I think it's, it's been a big ideological issue for the longest time. But, uh, you know, the, if it's one good thing that comes out of a crisis is that it, it, it forces an administration to rethink its position and its strategy and to consider alternative ways of perhaps achieving its end goals. Um, in this particular instance, happy to report that it seems to be turning more towards the private sector. So notwithstanding the fact that it's been reactive as opposed to proactive, uh, if we see some positive outcomes, do you, do you then see the potential for a, a change perhaps in political will, uh, which we need in, in order to, to provide the stimulation that the economy requires? Matt, but uh, political will is an, is an interesting one for me um, because I, I don't, you know, I, I tend to have a very cynical view of, of uh, politicians more generally. Um, and, and I think political will only really arises when it, it threatens um, a particular outcome or objective that that, that politician might have. Uh, so I see very few of them uh, as, as benevolent in the true sense of the word. And so, and so ultimately, uh, what, what I tend to find, and uh, there have been many examples, um, uh, especially post the, the 2009 global financial crisis of, of significant regime changes that have taken place, not, not because um, the incumbents were you know, so brilliant that they had to be chosen so much as it was a population seeking change. Uh, and so the ultimate objective for, for politicians, in my opinion, is to remain relevant. And to the extent that shifting policy uh, achieves that relevance, then I think your, what, what you term political will arises. Uh, but without that catalyst to get that going, without a, a groundswell of, of frustration um, at the uh, inability of a government to be able to deliver on its promises and objectives. Without that groundswell, I think it's very difficult. So at the moment, what have we got? Well, just middle of last year, we had those those terrible riots and um, and protests in KwaZulu Natal. Um, since then, we've had some really difficult economic times, and I think it's 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 not just coincidental that all of a sudden this government is now looking to reform um, and, and to bring in the private sector. Quite simply, I think they were out of options um, and, and didn't really have uh, another, uh, another credible alternative strategy to be able to adopt in order to, to try and keep this economy on, on track. Um, well, not that it has been on track, but you know, I think there's, there's now more, um, more appetite for reform than we had, but that's not a function of um, Ramaphosa and his administration being, you know, um, all-seeing all and, uh, and, and wanting to do the right thing so much as it's been forced on them. Perhaps we can finish because time has absolutely flown, as it always does with you, George. We, we touched on currency uh, earlier in the podcast, and there's been a fair amount of volatility actually in the in the currency markets in in recent weeks uh, in particular where do you see equilibrium for south africa's currency i mean i never thought i'd say this matt but but rand really is trading like a safe haven currency at the moment and that's probably because um uh, I think investors are, are treating it as a bit of a proxy for the commodity commodity cycle and, and commodities, as, as we all know, are, 
are rocking and rolling at the moment, moment doing extremely well um, and, and obviously boosting South Africa's terms of trade. So you've got a, a set of, of star alignments, if you like, that have, have come to pass that have moved in South Africa's favor. And it's, of course, uh, fundamentally about uh, what's happened at the, the commodity level, which has boosted terms of trade, which has boosted South Africa's trade and current accounts into surplus, which we've been able to sustain. Um, at the same time, we've had a weak domestic economy, which has constrained both consumption as well as investments. Our imports have remained um, un under, uh, under considerable pressure. Uh, again, uh, a net positive for rand. In and amongst that, you've had fiscal risk, right? And, and uh, investors have priced for fiscal risk. And the way they do that is through higher interest rates, which has raised South Africa's carry attractiveness on that front. Um, and, and, um, and then you've got other pecu peculiarities, such as you know, what's happened to Russia and what's happened to Turkey, uh, both of those currencies becoming a lot less investable. Um, so so your, your, your spectrum of, of emerging market um, uh, currencies that you can expose yourself to and invest in has shrunk. And of course, South Africa potentially benefits from that. Um, uh, you know, then you, you can delve into inflation differentials, and it's not often I can say this either, but uh, South Africa's inflation is is well below those of, of America and the UK, for example, um, at the moment. And from a purchasing power parity perspective, that pushes, uh, that, that supports rent. So it's, it's multifaceted, Matt, uh, that we've got a lot of factors that have come to play kind of at the same time. Um, that have boosted uh, the performance of the RAND. And, and so now we're sitting in a what we consider to be a, a mildly overvalued position, which is quite extraordinary if you consider that we're sub-investment grade and um, a country that faces many of its own challenges. And yet here we are. So I think it's, it really is a, a function of, of the, the commodity cycle. But you know, herein lies a caution in that if it is about uh, commodities, uh, bear in mind that these uh, these these events tend to be quite cyclical in nature and that this too shall pass um, as good as this has been for the rand positively at some point in time when geopolitical risk subsides and um, you know the the global supply chain network starts to normalize uh, I, I don't anticipate that uh, commodity prices are going to remain as elevated and of course that naturally has consequences for rand George, as always, uh, fascinating. We could uh, carry on for hours, I suspect, but I'd encourage uh, those subscribers to the podcast or those who are perhaps uh, listening in for the first time, if you've got questions and queries, do get in touch. Uh, the Skybound Capital email and website addresses have been available during the course of the podcast. I think we'll uh, put them up again now as well. And uh, I'm sure you found everything that George has had to say really interesting and stimulating. And I'd encourage you to take a look at ETM analytics as well. And, and as I say, do get in touch if you have uh, further comments or questions on our discussion points today. Uh, the Under the Macroscope podcast series is available on Apple, Spotify, and on the Google podcast uh, platform for Android. And all past editions of Under the Macroscope are available at www.skyboundcapital.com. George Glenos of uh, ETM Analytics, as always, great to chat. Uh, thank you for your time, your insight, uh, and your knowledge. Uh, we, we do appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. It's been great uh, touching base with you guys again. So until next time on Under the Microscope, have a great week, everyone.